0: join me in the book of John, chapter number four. We'll continue here uh, this evening in this series. I'm going to start reading with verse 27, and I'm going to read several verses tonight rather than uh, read and have you seated. I kind of transgressed all of that anyway last time, so, uh, you know, uh, that way no one has any expectations, and if I stop early, then it's just, you know, a surprise and not expectation. (laughs) Amen. John, chapter number four. Starting with verse number 27. We're going to get through this chapter, not tonight, but eventually. Amen. The Bible says, and upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. If you remember, we're kind of in the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. Yet no man said, what seekest thou or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, come and. See, a man which told me all things that ever I did, is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, hath any man brought him ought to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not, ye that, say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, Lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit until life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored and ye entered into their labors. Verse 39, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified. He told me all that ever I... Did So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word and said unto the woman, now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. Amen. Tonight I want to entitle this lesson. It kind of really is the title of an old Dottie People song. Nobody here, some people might know who Dotty Peoples is. There's others who probably don't even have a slice idea what I'm talking about. But nonetheless, it's kind of from an old Dottie People song I'm titling this night, Somebody Ought to Testify. Somebody ought to testify. Hallelujah. Let's pray tonight that the Lord would help us here this evening. Father, I love you, Jesus, today. Oh, God, we pledge, Lord, our, our lives and our attention, Lord Jesus, to you for the next little while. God, as once again we turn our hearts, Lord, toward your word. God, it's in this word, God, that there is a life. There's life for guidance and direction of our own personal lives. Lord, help us to accept it as so, Lord, and live it out as so. In the name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen. God bless you this evening in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Somebody ought to testify. And I'm not opening the floor right now for testimonies, but uh, just just kind of the title of this lesson. Somebody ought to testify because we have seen formally, it has even been said that a major topic throughout. The fourth gospel, the book of John, is the concept of witnessing or a witness. Somebody testifying or telling their own personal story to someone else or bringing someone to the Lord by means of their witness. And uh, the person that uh, is a high watermark of a witness here thus far in John, of course, is John the Baptist. He's illustrated so well for us. Uh, what a witness is and what a witness does. He has shown us how to point other people to Jesus Christ, but while at the same time losing ourselves in the shadow of who Jesus is. So he has a way to point and yet hide himself at the same time. That is one of the, some of the great attributes of John the Baptist uh, teaching us how to be a witness. And the reason why I I say that John does this so perfectly, uh, being able to promote Jesus in his life or in the life of others and in his own life. Think for a moment uh, the controversy or the contradiction that would be uh, Because it wouldn't be a very effective tactic for us to promote. Uh, the dominance, the 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 uh, the master type of row of Jesus in other people's lives if we do not allow him to have dominance and be master in our own lives. And so it's difficult, amen, to witness to somebody about, you know, you need the Lord, you need someone to lead you and guide you. And you need someone, you know, to direct steps in order your paths whenever you've not allowed the Lord to do that uh, in your own life. So that would be it wouldn't be a very effective t- tactic. But the John the Baptist could tell others concerning needing that because he allowed the Lord to be that in his own life. First and foremost, he wasn't at the helm of his own ship. John wasn't. And so he helped lead others. And so what John did for Jesus and and, and, and take a close attention here. But what John did for Jesus, Jesus then does for God. And that may seem odd to say that. And some people are oh yeah Listen, I'm not going in. I'm not talking about two persons or anything here. But what John did for Jesus, Jesus had done for God. Because when I say that I'm pointing to the two natures of Jesus Christ, I'm pointing to his human nature. All right. And I'm pointing to his divine nature. Nature, Because all throughout the scripture, we understand that in Jesus's human nature and in his human human life, he is constantly pointing to the divine side, the great God almighty. Uh, The human nature of Jesus, we read and we'll get to it even further in our study of the book of John, that the human nature of Jesus, and he tells us this, that he will not do anything except what the divine nature once done. And that he, he will not even speak anything what, unless what his father once done, the divine side of him once done. And so Jesus' will in his earthly ministry as a man walking among men was to do the will of the one who sent him. It was to do the will of the one that commissioned him. Ultimately, he wanted the divine nature to have its will in his human nature. All right. And so as he as John gives witness to Jesus, Jesus in flesh and blood and also in what he says and does gives witness to the great God almighty, the God that indwelt that man. Christ Jesus. Again, John 1 14 tells us that word was made flesh. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16 tells us even more plainly that God was manifest in the flesh. John chapter number 3 even tells us that God sent his son into the world and yet at the same time he tells us that no man hath seen God, a man at any time but the only begotten son and that that son or that flesh has Declared God, revealed God, if I may, gave witness to God. Amen. And so what John did for Jesus, Jesus has done for God. Number one, simply by being born in Bethlehem's manger. Amen. He was the express image of the person of God, which means he was the exact copy of the essence of who God was. Amen. And so he gives witness, amen, to God, but also he gives witness to him by what he says and by what he does. And I think that is clearly seen in John chapter number four, in Jesus's interaction with the woman at the wedding. Because remember, he kind of leads with this whenever he speaks to her. He says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that spoke to you, who it is that spoke to her was almost secondary. He's pushing this fact if you knew the gift of God. He says, In another place, whenever they start to talk in the little discourse about worship, he says, The Father seeketh such to worship him and to worship him in spirit and in truth. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is trying to be a witness unto her, amen, about the great God of heaven. Although, as we said in weeks gone by, although by many standards uh, she is a cultural outcast on several levels, he is still trying to witness, amen, unto her. And so the biblical story uh, throughout the pages of Scripture is one that stresses something concerning witnessing or somebody ought to testify. Amen. It stresses this, is that we need to value each one that can be reached. The value of reaching even one is vital and important. In other words, we cannot underestimate the impact that a witness to one person will have in the overall continuum of time. Amen. Because we've already seen within the pages of the Gospel of John where the Bible says that Andrew first found his brother Simon Peter and conveyed to him about We found the Christ. We have found the Messiah. So Andrew has ministered to and conveyed witness to one individual, Simon Peter, about the Messiah. And yet, we go several pages over in the book of Acts and we herald the name of Peter because he's the dynamic preacher on the day of Pentecost. My God, speaking about the death, burial, and resurrection. And when they ask the question, What shall we do? He says, You must repent and be. be-. And we just, you know, and by days, in 3000, we're added to the church. So we're talking about a pretty good group of people that he must have witnessed to about Jesus. But let us not forget. That Peter would have witnessed to that multitude of thousands had not Andrew witnessed to the one. So we can't undercut the value of a witness just even to one. Amen. Because somewhere in the past of Peter's life was an Andrew, amen, that spoke to him and seems like solely him. And so what happens then as a culture begins, what happened is a culture begins in the church, this mentality that each one counts Trickles down, amen, from Andrew even into Peter, because then we see later, even in the life of Peter, amen, Pentecost wasn't his only time to preach before a crowd, but he didn't always just speak to crowds of thousands. The Bible says in one particular episode of Acts, chapter number ten, as he is uh, praying and sees the vision uh, that there's three men that are knocking on his door. He goes down to that door, and these three men are servants of one by the name of Cornelius, and uh, they say that their master wants to hear spoken words of his, what he has to share, his message that he has to share, and so Peter travels, uh, you know, a decent distance. And as he's traveling, his plan is this. I'm going to witness to one man, Cornelius. One. Amen. But he knows because what he experiences in his own life, everyone counts. Each one counts. So I'm going to go and witness to this one man, Cornelius. Yet the Bible unveils for us in verse 24 of Acts 10 that whenever he arrives there, Cornelius has brought together his friends and his relatives. And that within itself starts to underscore and undergird the fact that each one counts. Because you, and I'll say this probably and I'll repeat this more than once tonight. You cannot touch one without touching more than one. If that makes sense. Amen. You cannot touch one without touching more than one. And so whenever Jesus, it comes to our story, Jesus is witnessing to a a woman of Samaria at a well, culturally unaccepted, uh, at a well, at a peculiar time. Yes, a peculiar location. And the Bible relates to us that one woman goes back to her city. She's broadcasting what she has learned concerning this man. And the Bible says the people are coming out of that. That town and out of that city to where Jesus was. And we read in the text tonight in verse 39 that many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him, that is Jesus, for the saying of this one woman. And then it says in verse 41, many more believed because they met Jesus and heard his own word. But the meeting of Jesus is really attributed to one woman that Jesus took time to witness to. A whole city comes out because of one. And someone took time for one. So it's important, again, each one counts. Somebody ought to testify. I was doing a little reading, just a little research today, and the New York Times released an article back in 2013 and reported, and this kind of blew my mind, actually, it reported that the average American knows 600 people. Average American, you understand there's got to be highs and lows there to get that 600. But the average American knows 600 people. So again, I tell you, we must understand then that when we connect with one person, it's really never just one. Uh-huh. Because that average person knows 600 other persons. Hey, Amen. And so when we connect with one person, we have connected, in essence, with every person that individual has, is, or will be connected to. Listen, there's no better example of this. This is is the the purest example I'm giving. There's no better example of this than currently right now during this pandemic of COVID-19. Record-keeping of gatherings and groups are so important because if someone is COVID-19 positive, there is a list of people that they are going to contact or need to contact or must be considered for consideration of contact. Why? Because that person has had contact with so many people. Honey, if we got to monitor COVID-19 because of how one person may be in contact with so many people, then somebody ought to testify. Hallelujah. So, yes. Somebody ought to testify because if you only knew the moment that you shared what God has done for you, how many more people they talk to or are in contact with, that your message may not stop at their ears but even trickle down into the different levels of the relationship that they have in their life. Studies have shown another little research. I did studies have shown that the average person comes in contact with an average of 16 people per day. Now, think here for a moment, consider how quickly that pool of people can grow. If each person is in contact with 16 more, what I'm saying is if I invest in one person, Don McGee, and she makes contact with 16 other people. And then I have another person, because see, me alone, I have probably 16 contacts in a day. Each one of those have 16. At the level two, I'm already at, and I looked at it, I'm already at 272 people. My original 16, and then all of those, each one 16. Just because of one. Amen. Just because of one. And so we need not to underestimate the power of witness to one. Sometimes I think we uh, uh, get in t- intimidated because we think we've got to have the masses or it's got to be ten or if it's not that, then it's really, you know, it's really nothing. It really is no count. It's not a great witness unless you just have slews of people that you have given and divulged. You know, no, 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 no. Do not underestimate just one person. Amen. As a matter of fact, it, it, it would be good somewhere in a year's time. You just need to pick you out one person at the beginning of the year and say, I'm just going to invest a witness in them this year. Amen. As a matter of fact, if we ever start going around tonight, there'd be people in this church that are here because somebody else is here that. If you start tracing the branches of the tree, you'd come to a trunk. Amen. And so that's the power of one. And so from the Samaritan woman, we learned that the purpose of the witness as she went back to her town, the purpose of the witness should be promoting the initial encounter with Jesus. That's really what she did. Uh, As a matter of fact, we see before chapter number four that whenever Philip uh, was already following the lord and he approached nathaniel if you remember in chapter 1 nathaniel had his and this is good for us nathaniel had his reservations nathaniel had his doubts concerning this jesus of nazareth his reservations and doubts but what did philip say he didn't he didn't accept that as just a boatface rejection philip said come and see very simply i know bring your reservations bring your doubts with you but come and see him. Don't take my word for it. Bring all of those things that are troubling you about him and just come and see. And the Bible says it's that initial interaction. The Bible says that after Nathaniel has had interaction and dialogue with Jesus himself, everything that Philip had told him concerning the Lord and was mentioned was solidified for Nathaniel himself because he had that encounter. He had that encounter with the Lord, amen, and he believed. And so here's the Samaritan woman going back into the city of Samaria, amen, and, and she attempts to get those of her city, and her voice is many echoing, Philip's voice, she's telling them, come and see. And the Bible says they come out of the city. You know, the saying is they went, they saw, or whatever, and they conquered. Well, these people, they went, they saw and heard, and they were conquered. Amen. They were conquered. The Bible says in John 4, look at it again. John 4 and verse 41. And many more believed because of his own word and said unto the woman, now we believe not because of thy saying. Look, and and what's being conveyed is here. It's not because of what you said only. That's kind of implicit here. It's not because of what you've only said, but because we've also heard him. We've also experienced him now. We have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Folks, what some people need, they just need that first encounter. What some people need is just that first encounter. And so our words of our witness and our testimony should do this. It should stir up their faith it should help invite them if you will to a place where they can hear his words and encounter him because here's here's the story at the end of the day our words testify but his words transform if we can get enough people testifying perhaps it will be persuasive enough for an encounter and then his words can transform and all things can be made new old man old man can die and a new man can resurrect amen in christ Jesus. So they need that initial encounter with the Lord. And that's one reason you've heard me say it before. I'll say it again here and everybody in the listening audience through television land. Amen. And that is this. Every time it is important, every time that we come to church, we must fire on all cylinders as a church. We must fire on all cylinders as a congregation. Amen. Because where it may be customarily uh, customary for us to come to church every service it may be somebody's first service you, you, you might have encountered the Lord on multiple occasions but this may be their First encounter. And they've been brought here because somebody testified. Somebody witnessed. Amen. And we need a fire on all cylinders. And so it's imperative. I tell you tonight, as a pastor, amen, I implore you, it is imperative for us to set an atmosphere in the church through our prayer, through our praise, through our worship. Why? Whereby somebody could come and hear and feel, amen, and ultimately experience the Lord. Because although our witness and our testimony may get them here, his words, don't underestimate the word of the Lord, his words can keep them and can ground them. The Bible says in John 6 and verse 63, Jesus says, it is the spirit that quickeneth. He says, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. This verse 63, it's a long chapter, wait till we get there. Amen. 63, the 63rd verse. Amen. Jesus is having his discourse on the bread of life. He comes to them, he's telling them that I am the bread of life. He told them that the bread that he gave them was his he told them that the blood that was provided, amen, for them or the drink that was provided for them was his blood. He spoke about his blood. However, he's underscoring here in verse number 63 that they were to understand that his flesh and blood was not to be taken Literally, in a literal sense. Because he wants us to know that the flesh in reality profiteth nothing. But it is the spirit that quickens. It's the spirit that makes us alive. His words, he even says, are spirit and life. And with that being said then, everything we do in our witness and everything we do as the church must be driven by the spirit. We don't need people playing instruments that's just in their flesh. We don't need people teaching and preaching that's just in their flesh. We don't need worshipers worshiping just in their flesh because the flesh Profits, nothing. The flesh the balance at the end of the day is zero. But if we can get somebody fired up in their spirit and sing a few little syllables, somebody to play an instrument with the anointing of heaven, somebody to teach and preach under the inspiration and the power of the Holy Ghost, then folks the balance at the end of the day is going to be much, much better because in that spirit is life. Yes! Hallelujah! It is life. Amen. And it will make us alive. It can take somebody, people that are dead in their sins, and it can bring them alive again because of the Spirit. Amen. Later in that same chapter of John 6, Jesus has spoke several things to a multitude of disciples, not just the 12, but a multitude of followers and There's many of the disciples that begin to leave him and walk away and not walk with him anymore. And he turns in that moment to the 12 and he asks them, will ye go also away? Peter says, to whom shall we go? For thou hast the words, here it is again, of eternal life. Peter linked life to his words. But sometimes in order to get someone to hear his words, they got to hear your words first. And so if there's life, eternal life in his words, then I'll tell you tonight, that's where we need to tether our fallen world. We need to tether to his words because that's where life truly is. And so the Bible says that the Samaritan people heard the woman's words. All right. And that was very beneficial to them. That that engaged them to go out of the city to where Jesus was. But ultimately, they had to hear the words of the Lord. Her personal story and witness of him was valuable to the people. But having a personal experience for themselves would be priceless. (laughs) Would be priceless. The old saying is this from generations and generations ago. And that is God doesn't have any grandchildren. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has sons and daughters. And what that means is this, is that our relationship with him and to him cannot be based upon someone else's relationship with him. We all need a first-tier relationship with God of son and daughter. Great for the testimony of somebody else, but I need a testimony. I need an experience with the Lord for myself. And so when that happens, here's what takes place. The same woman that first had conversation with Jesus and says, Sir, you don't have anything to draw with. And the well was very deep, criticizing him because it didn't have anything to draw with. This same woman, because of her personal experience, now leaves her own bucket at the well. And she's going into the city to tell everybody about Jesus Christ because she's become overcome. She's she's overwhelmed by her own experience and his words that he spoke to her. That whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst again. John 4 verse 31. And in the meanwhile, we kind of like have a story within the story taking place here. And in the meanwhile, while the lady's going into town and, and the people are coming back out after Jesus, in the meanwhile, his disciples prayed to him saying, Master, eat. You'll remember, we go all the way back to verse number 8. Whenever Jesus stopped at the well, the boys went to the town to find food. Right? Jesus is weary. He's evidently thirsty. And so they, in the meanwhile, his disciples pray him, Master, eat. They've come back now to the well. Verse 32, but he said to them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. So he's shown up at Jacob's well. He's weary. He is thirsty as the man Christ Jesus, right? Because the God that is in the man, Psalmist David said, neither slumbers nor sleeps. I'm tearing up this microphone tonight for some reason. Just pick up all the pieces and put them back together later. <clears throat> he neither slumbers nor sleeps. And so the disciples go to buy meat in order to take care of his human side. He asked for drink at the well to take care of his human side. But in Jesus' own words, which the disciples are trying to figure out here, Jesus is saying, I have sustenance that you don't even know about. Well, Your tongue was hanging at your mouth when we got here at Jacob's well. On his human side, he said, but on the divine side, he said, I got some meat that you know not of. And so what unfolds then is a misunderstanding that the disciples having about what he's talking about. Jesus was so oftentimes misunderstood. It does my heart well. Amen. Yeah. He talked to Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus missed it. Huh? He talks to the Samaritan woman first and foremost. She misses it. And now his own disciples that's been traveling around with him for a little bit. He's speaking to them. Natural things with spiritual application. And they're missing it. It's great. But here's the fact of the matter, folks, here's the fact of the matter concerning the disciples and they're missing it. And listen to me very carefully. If we are not careful, the tangible things that happen around us sometimes will distract us from the intangible things that are wanting to happen inside of us. Oh, he's hungry, he's thirsty, all this, but they're missing. The deeper things, the, the natural sometimes Detracts you from what spiritually has taken place. You want to know why some things arise in your life? Because our adversary is not ignorant either. He knows that natural things detract you from the spiritual things. They distract you. They grab your attention. And you'll miss really what's going on. Amen. Amen. And so... Paul admonishes us. Then, as a result of that, we must walk in the spirit, because there's many times as we walk in this old earth here below that our feet are right here on the ground. Amen. Our feet are here, but there are times that when our feet are planted here on the earth, that our hearts and minds need to be soaring above the temporal, and they need to be captured by the spiritual. They need to be untethered, if you will, from a geographic location or or the surroundings or the situations that are perverting per, per, perverting or pervading circumstances that are happening in that moment and we need to enter into the realm of the spiritual because when this happens we'll have a similar experience like John in the book of Revelation on the Isle of Patmos had when he declared on the Isle of Patmos I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying I am alpha and omega I am first and I am last Patmos was an island it was small it was rocky it was barren it had minimum vegetation it was a picture of ruggedness and desolation and if John got captured in the natural all he would see is barrenness rocky terrain minimum vegetation but you know what John says I'm not going to allow where my feet are right now amen the natural to detract from the spiritual in the Lord's day he was in the spirit and he heard the voice say John I know it looks bad and rugged." but I'm the Alpha and the Omega I know you're isolated here on this island but I am the first and the last folks you need to be tapped into the spirit so that whenever things around you are not looking in your favor you're holding on to the word of God that says I was in the beginning and I'll be in your ending and I'll be everywhere in between (laughs) Amen Hallelujah things are different in the spirit so the disciples, with their misunderstanding, they thought perhaps somebody brought Jesus something to eat. We went to town to get him something to eat. Somebody's beat us to the punch. Someone's, and I'm not talking about the punch. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Someone's brought him. Just things go through your mind, I'm telling you. I'm trying to keep in the spiritual. The natural just pulling you down. every day. <laughs> Amen. Someone must have brought him something to eat, but he explains. He says, my meat, again, he's he's conveying something very spiritual to them. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and notice his wording here, and finish his work, finish his work. When we look at the will of God or the work of the Lord, there's a few verses of Scripture, there's others, but I'm just sharing a couple. Luke 19 and verse 10, the Bible says, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was Loss, Matthew eighteen and verse fourteen. This is a, another occurrence of the hundred sheep, one loss scenario that we read in Luke fifteen as well. But it's also in Matthew eighteen, Matthew eighteen, verse fourteen. So this is considering this hundred sheep. The Bible says, "Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish." It's speaking about the sheep. It's not His will that any of these should perish. And so the will of the Father that became the will. Of the man Christ Jesus was seeking and saving that which was lost. That none of the sheep, none of the fold would be lost. But what God began in creation, Jesus came to finish in incarnation. Whew. Amen. Because the human nature of Jesus was to finish what the divine nature had started in the beginning. Even with Adam and Eve. The son of God was to finish what the father had started. I know I'm speaking here. I'm not going to get anybody lost, but uh, I think it's important in, in our day and age and being apostolic Pentecostal to underscore the fact of the oneness of God in one person. All right. And so the sonship relationship was to finish what the fatherhood relationship of God had started. Again, one completed the other. One entered, as we'll get a little further in Scripture, one completed the labors, entered in the labors of another. I'm not talking about two persons when I mention father and son. I'm talking about roles and relationships. I'm talking that what the Spirit started, because God is a spirit, John 4, we've had it right here in our text here. What the Spirit has started, it finished through the flesh and person of Jesus Christ. To wit that God was in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.19. So Jesus, in doing this, we see even later that he comes to the pool of Bethesda. There's a crowd of people there, and he tells them these words after healing a lame man found there. And guys, I messed up on you on this one. I don't know. Did I tell you to include the English Standard Version? I did. I said ESV. And you translated, praying is God. John 5, verse 17, Jesus said this after the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. He said, Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Whew. It's so plain, and you can see that in other translations. That, uh, the, the King James kind of uses hitherto, and words like that, that you kind of get lost. Okay, but that kind of makes it plain. He says, my father is working. He says, but I am working. It's like he's brought us to this point, and I'm going to finish Not only that, but anytime Jesus worked, the father was at work because the father was in Jesus. Amen. And so he had come to finish the work. And so we find ourselves many times, even in the church, amen, in our modern day world, talking about somebody ought to witness. We find ourselves entering to other people's labors. You may not have been the first one to plant the seed in somebody's heart, but you've been an Apollos to come by to water what somebody else has planted. Someone's already talked to them about God and about him going to a cross for them and dying for them. But you come along now with water. You didn't start it. But you are an integral link in the process of it and so we enter into other people's labors and that's what the man Christ Jesus has done, amen, concerning what God had started all the way back at creation and so we enter into other people's labors and Jesus, notice what Jesus tells us, amen, so it would seem that doing, doing the will of the Father was not cumbersome to him, doing the will of the Father he didn't feel put out by this as a matter of fact, he says I have meat that you know not of and he's talking about the will of God doing the will of God is nourishment to him doing the will of God is fulfilling to him amen it's not cumbersome but it it feeds his soul it feeds his spirit amen and Jesus will not in the scripture ascend into heaven after his resurrection Without having already, even in the book of John, set a pattern and an example before us. Because what Jesus will ask us to do in Acts 1 and 8, he is doing already in John with his message of repentance and remission of sins and baptizing people in the Jordan River. Look at it, if you will. Acts 1 and 8, we know these scriptures. We've taught them and preached them. Jesus says, before He departs, but ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me. Both look at this now in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Already, Jesus in the Gospel of John has went into the temple in Jerusalem and cleansed it, and met with a ruler by the name of Nicodemus. Everybody say that's Jerusalem. The Bible said he left Jerusalem and went to Judea along where John the Baptist was, along the River Jordan. And what are they doing? They are baptizing disciples. (laughs) Someone said that was Judea. Now in John 4, he is in Samaria. Talking with a woman at the well about living water. And that's Samaria. He's already sitting. He's not asking us something. He's not asking us to do something. He's not willing or have done himself. He says, "I've I've been to Jerusalem. I've been to Judea. I've been to Samaria. And before John's over, he's going to reach some of the outer skirts of the world, meaning the Gentile nations. And so whenever he ascends into glory, he looks at us. And what he's basically saying is this. Do what I've done. Hey, man, somebody ought to testify. Do what I have done. Because the law of the harvest is what? The law of the harvest is sowing and reaping. Huh? Sometimes we get in our mind, oh, look over there. You know, it gets around October, those fall months, and combine's out. Oh, look over there, they're harvesting. And we get this association that harvesting only has to do with reaping. But harvest is really sowing and reaping because you can't reap what isn't sown. Amen. You can't reap what isn't sown. And the fact of the matter is what Jesus is conveying to his disciples is that you might sow and someone else might come along and reap. Or you might reap where you did not sow. He says, but here's the fact of the matter. You need not neglect your part of the harvest. If you have been called to sow, sow. He said, but if you've been called to water, if you will, water. If you've been called to reap, then reap. But don't neglect your part. Huh? I used to remember. I don't remember what it is. Someone could probably Google it right now. But you plant one, one seed of corn in the ground and you get, it's a multiplication. How many more, on average, seeds of corn that come on the stalk? Ears and seeds on the ears. And a little rare fact I just share my the every day. Every ear of corn has an equal amount of rows on it. Every one of them. That's just ridiculous knowledge that just gets stored in the corners of my head that I just thought I'd share with you. But they all have equal rows. But what I'm saying is there's multiplication. So, again, if you attend to one seed, you don't attend to one seed without there being a multiplication of seeds. Somebody ought to testify. So harvest is not just about reaping. It's about sowing. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 46, or verse 4 through 6. There's no 46 in Ecclesiastes. You go look for it, though, okay? Come back to me, report. Um, (laughs) It's like, and after you're done with that, go uh, read from Jude 2 and verse 12. (laughs) Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 4. The preacher, Solomon, says, He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. As thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. Look at verse 6. In the morning, he says then, Sow thy seed, and the evening withhold not thine hand. For thou knowest not whether shall prosper, either this or that, whether they both shall be alike good. He says we're spending so much time observing, and we're saying right now is really not a good time to sow. No, no, right, no it would be horrible to go out right now and harvest and reap. We're observing everything and we're coming up with the what ifs. If we do it right now, but what if? Or we're so in the observation mode of what may happen or what could happen that in the process of observing, we've observed ourselves out of doing anything. He says, there there is no way that you're going to have the knowledge uh, of looking at lowering clouds and saying, well, it's going to rain today. Just absolutely no. There's no way. He says, so here's my advice to you. In the morning, so in the evening, so. Regardless. He said, regardless of what it looks like, regardless of what all the what ifs are, so in the morning, so in the evening, because you don't really know which of those are going to prosper or if either of them are going to prosper. He says, but you just keep doing what you're doing. Because what Solomon is expressing us to us, because remember, the book of Ecclesiastes is about life under the sun. That's a S-U-N. Life under the sun. Life, life lived under the sun apart from God. We're talking about a man that went through a stage in his life that he was backslid from God. So he experienced with life under the sun, absent God. He built gardens, all these other things, and it was vanity and vexation. It was emptiness to him was his final declaration. He says, living life under the sun, he says, "Is this is the fact. Life under the sun, there will never be an ideal time to sow and reap. You can record all of all day long. The what ifs, he said, but here is the condition of life under the sun. Life under the sun is based on fact. But life under the sun, S-O-N, is based on faith. It's based on faith. And he says, so here's what I commission you to do while you're living life under the sun. Live by faith with life under the S-O-N. Do something. I can't guarantee you the results, but you can increase your chances if you're diligent to make the most of the chances you got. Here's something I can guarantee. If you never sow, you'll never reap. Even New Testament scripture says, even tells us, that if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. But if you row, if you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. So those those are the the for certain variables and not variables, but they are the certain. Uh, uh, Values that we have. Sow abundantly, reap abundantly, sow sparingly, reap abundantly. Don't sow anything, don't get anything. He said, but I can't guarantee you everything that will or won't happen or will or won't come to fruition and take place. He says, but you got to do something. He's telling us we cannot control all the uncertainties of life. Oh, there's a cloud. There's this. It's just not a good time. The church right now is in this position. Huh? Oh, we just got a lot of stuff going on in life. We're working a lot of hours and, you know, and then there's this corona on the rage. And You don't understand what I'm saying. He said, you you, you can't do that. He said, you can't control the uncertainties. He says, faith, though, because we lean on facts sometimes. We sometimes get unbalanced. We start leaning on more fact than we do faith. Faith doesn't tell you how everything's going to turn out along the way. Faith doesn't tell you how everything's going to turn out. But the glory of faith is this, is that it flourishes, it flourishes when it doesn't know what God's secret purposes are. Because remember, in Hebrews 11, 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Amen. John four 35. I'm running, trying to make 100. 99. Say not ye, verse 35. Say not ye, Jesus says. There are yet four months and then cometh harvest. But I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Jesus is borrowing something here that the disciples would be well aware of. The Jews had a six-fold division agricultural year. Each of these divisions lasted approximately Two months. There was seed time, there was one division, winter, spring, harvest, summer, and something they called the extreme heat. <laughs> there's these six divisions, each lasting a couple months. And so if you look at it, seed time, winter, spring, harvest, between seed time and harvest time, there's two divisions of winter and spring. Each of those lasted in approximately two months so to the estimation of the Jews according to their agricultural divisions between seed time and harvest time there's about four months of time but Jesus again is using something very literal to elevate it to a spiritual concept he says don't don't say you guys even almost have a, a proverb or a saying that it's four months until harvest he says naturally there may be four months between seed time and harvest time he says but in the spirit It's not always so. He said the fields are white already to harvest. And if you look at it in the context of what just has happened with Jesus in his conversation with this lady at the well. And she's going in talking to the folks and the folks are coming out to him. He says, we just had a conversation moments ago. And and they say, and I don't know, I'm just basically going totally off of culture and history of what I read. They say many of these Samaritans in that day wore like white robes. And so as they made their way out of the city of Samaria, here's all of these white images coming. And it's almost as Jesus making reference. He's saying, look, the fields are white. Already to harvest. Amen. Because he witnessed to one woman and that woman had a connection with a whole city and a whole town. What are you saying, Brother McGee? I'm saying somebody ought to testify. Somebody ought to witness. Somebody ought to spread. Though I'm not very good at speaking, Brother McGee, do what you can. Find your niche and do what you can. If you express yourself better in word on page, do that. Why, whatever means you can. If you're better about being able to assimilate people just for a good time at your dwelling, then invite people that don't know God with people that do know God, and let's have a good time. (laughs) Because in that type of setting, something is going to be unveiled that they are going to pick up on. That, that happens in the same way when people are working at jobs, they work alongside other people, and that thing comes, Sister Grace, and they say, what is it about you that's different than other people I work with? You know what God's making room for? Somebody to testify. Hallelujah. If you'll stand to your feet here tonight. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Remember this Sunday in the morning in house, none that night. But real quickly, before we close this evening, because I have an audience that's beyond this audience in here. I'm telling you in the Facebook land tonight that if you've never given the Lord an opportunity or a chance in your life. Then please give him an opportunity and chance. Because I only have so much vocabulary and descriptions to be able to describe to you how good and how wonderful he is. And I am limited with words to be able to do that. But you can come one time and experience his spirit and his power. And it can make plain what my words could not explain. Hallelujah. Let's pray right now. Father, I come to you, Jesus, tonight.